Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So you're feeling a little more rested, Chris? Yeah, I've uh, avoided the ridiculous travel before this episode, so it's been a, a little bit easier to sleep on a regular basis the past couple of weeks. Nice. This is our very first episode with a sponsor. Yeah, we're fortunate that the Santa Fe Symposium has uh, decided to sponsor this episode of Off Hours. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the middle of the show. But uh, we're happy to have our first sponsor joining us here. So we'll kick things off with a little bit of follow-up, as usual. I had asked you about uh, some software you use on your computer, and it turns out one of those pieces of software is no longer under active development. Yeah, that's right. It looks like Control Plane is no longer being developed, which is uh, which is too bad. Yeah, so if you were, were hoping to make use of that, we apologize for, for bringing it up without uh, first checking whether it's actually still being actively worked on. So it is unfortunately an abandoned piece of software. Uh, maybe it'll come back in the future, but with the way things are, are heading for Mac OS, it's unlikely that it, that there is much of a future left for it in terms of the way that the system's being locked down. Yeah, it does currently work still. Um, so I know that as of High Sierra, it still works. I haven't tried putting Mojave on my machine yet, so I'm not sure if it's going to continue functioning under Mojave. But even with the sandboxing rules of High Sierra, it is still able to function just fine. So uh, as of right now, it is still out there on the internet. You can still find it. I suspect there are some things in the system that don't work properly, and uh, you know you may you may run into some issues with that. Uh, although, if there's anyone out there who's um, who's curious, I think the code is out there on GitHub, isn't it? That I did not look into. Hmm. Okay, I, I think I think it's possible the code is out there in the world, and and if you were interested in forking it, you you wanted a project to to work on in your off hours, then uh, that might be something for you to try. But uh, unfortunately, it is not under active development. So if there's anyone out there who has a reasonable alternative to Control Plane, uh, something that easily allows you to change up settings on your machine uh, without intervention, uh, something that could use either networks or location services to change up uh, various services on your machine, I'd love to hear about it because uh, I'm, I'm always interested in, in uh, improving the way my system works and especially being able to make it more secure uh, while I'm on the road. Another quick bit of follow-up, I mentioned offhand that the Spirograph was a toy of the 80s, and that's simply because I was in diapers in the 80s and I'm oblivious to anything that came before that. It turns out Spirograph was first brought to market in 1965, so it was a couple decades off there. And if you're interested in something like the Spirograph and you want to uh, buy something that's maybe a little bit more complicated than a Spirograph, something that has a little bit more uh, customization uh, potential, then uh, Joe Friedman has a cycloid drawing machine available. And uh, he was actually at the OTI Symposium over in Seattle uh, when I was there at the end of September. So I had a chance to see one of his latest machines. And uh, they're relatively simple in terms of uh, their construction. Uh, he's using um, thin board that he's laser cut. And uh, so he's got his gears laser cut out of sort of a thin board. And uh, it works quite well, and it was quite impressive seeing uh, seeing what he's able to do with it. I know he ran a Kickstarter a few years ago for it, um, and I think he was talking about having a new batch of uh, of these out there, and I think there was a new machine that he was bringing out. So the idea of the Spirograph uh, excites you, but you find it a little bit limiting, then uh, you might want to check out what Joe Friedman's doing. In another vein of machinery and invention, you sent me a video this week. I ran into a YouTube channel recently called Machine Thinking, uh, I came across it from the Making It podcast. Um, the guys that are on that were talking about it. And uh, the particular video that I came across was him discussing the Vaucasson metal lathe. And it looks like this was the first lathe made entirely out of metal. And certainly the first lathe that starts to approximate what our modern machine lathes are doing uh, in terms of having a carriage and, and a lead screw. His was designed in, I think, 1751, and it is in a museum in Paris that is dedicated to machinery and industry. And uh, this video has a, a good uh, overview of what the machine is and what it looks like. So if you're uh, curious to see what some of these early lathes are look like, uh, this was a, a good video talking about that. And it looks like the this particular channel, the Machine Thinking channel, is uh, is quite interesting. 
he also has an ongoing series where he's building a replica of James Watt's micrometer. Uh, so if you're interested in seeing what that would have looked like and uh, seeing the process of somebody making one in a modern machine shop, then he has a series going right now that's, uh, that's talking about that. And I found the video nicely paralleled Simon Winchester's book, The Perfectionists, that we talked about a few episodes back. Yeah, and there's obviously a lot of stories like this where you know, there were people sort of in parallel developing these technologies and these ideas of precision. And, uh, and of course, in a, you know, you can't have all of these stories show up in a book. So it's nice to see somebody covering a slightly different side of the, uh, the same coin in terms of, uh, what these people were doing and inventing. Now, while you were off globe trotting these past couple of, of weeks, uh, I had the opportunity to have a, a tour around a machine shop, part of Lee Valley Tools, which we mentioned back in episode one as the company that you purchased uh, one of your first pen kits from. And I got a, an interesting tour behind the scenes of, of how things actually operate there uh, as part of Veritas, which is the, the manufacturing division or arm of the the company that was founded by leonard lee yeah i'm a little jealous of this uh this tour that you're able to get on i i haven't uh i haven't been able despite being a a dedicated and loyal loyal customer of of uh, veritas and lee valley over the years and having lived very close by to their facilities i have never had a chance to get a tour of their uh their manufacturing and uh the other one that i want to get a tour of is their tool collection they've got a an amazing antique tool collection mm-hmm. there. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about their manufacturing because I've, I've spoken to a few people who've worked there and a few people who've, uh, who've visited. So I'm, I'm curious to, uh, to hear what you have to say about it and what, what the tour was like. It was quite the operation and nice to know that something like that exists so locally right here in the capital. And I guess it'd be suitable to give a, a little bit of background on the the company uh, was, was founded by Leonard Lee in his mid-30s. Uh, he was previously working for government, and, and he decided to branch out on his own. He started selling uh, essentially kits to make a, a wood-burning stove. So all these cast-iron parts that he would offer by, by mail order, and then just branched out from there, offering more and more tools and interesting little knickknacks, and then eventually started making tools himself. So very tough is the, the manufacturing division, and uh, that's the Latin word for truth. One of the things that really stuck out to me when I first walked in was the, the code of quality. It's very prominent there right in the entrance and then at numerous points all around the, the workshop. And for any woodworkers out there who are familiar with the, the planes and chisels and, and different wood-shaping tools that Lee Valley is renowned for, you'll you'll know that they, they do live up to a very high code of quality. And I really admire what they aspire to there in, in their manufacturing and, and the level of quality that they endeavor to adhere to. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of their tools. They're they're certainly not the, the cheapest tools that are available on the market for woodworking, um, but they're all very well thought out. And one of the things I've always been impressed with, along with their attention to detail when they've manufactured them, uh, many of them are based off of old tools. I mentioned their their impressive tool collection, a historical tool collection. Many of their tools are based off of older tools, and uh, they've gone ahead and taken the best parts of the old tools and then worked on improving them and, and adding different functionality to them to... Uh, or improving the functionality of them, so I've been I, I've been a big fan of their tools from from day one. A quote I heard once from Lee is that he sees or endeavors to treat all of his customers as friends, and that, an interesting thing I sort of read between the lines on that too, knowing some other anecdotes and stories about the way that he would handle various situations that sprung up over the years is that you know, friends aren't always right. Uh, so, so the customer isn't necessarily <laughs> always right, but um, he would always stand behind the products and, and you know, be there to do you a solid. And I think the success of the company is testament to that. The whole reason they started making tools was just because he was frustrated with the quality of what he was able to get. And uh, he was frustrated that he couldn't, like a, a tool that was a, 
say 50 years old or 100 years old and he had had passed down through the the family or been able to find on a, a farm somewhere he was frustrated that the modern tools weren't up to the the same level of quality and would not endure in the same way so they started out by manufacturing just two carpenters planes and then they've expanded to do a whole lot more from there and the manufacturing facility actually occupies the old building that the store and warehouse both used to fit in so when you first walk in it's actually still set up in much the same way that the original sales area would have been set up and the person showing me around said it was it's always a little surreal for him walking through there because he can remember being in there as a kid with his dad and he can like point and be like i remember my dad standing right there and, and picking out such and such a tool and he now operates uh, a number of the grinders in in the back area there but there's even there's still the pegboard up on the wall or uh, pegboard's the wrong word but the the mounting board that tools would have been put up on and uh the odd little sign and things and that front area now is is primarily for the final assembly and, and quality control checks where they they get things packaged up and, and ready to go out and it also houses uh somewhat antiquated but still very effective laser so it turns out all of the engraving on their, their chisels are all done by a, a giant beamer fxl 22 which still does the job just fine and i was impressed that or impressed to learn that it her markings are all done on a laser because it's they've been doing it for so long that way but also because some of these engravings and markings are very deep if you're using a laser for engraving all you need to do is is just keep going at it for a little while and and it'll eventually uh, you know cut deeper so it's just a it's just a question of how long you're willing to to spend on it i know that was one of the complaints that uh, they had at the assaying office in london as often they they offer different depths of engraving when they're doing the laser hallmarking they were complaining a little bit about the the length of time it takes to engrave some of these deeper stamps so yeah, as long as you're willing to to spend the time it's um the laser will will engrave deep enough for you now also in the the front area there as i mentioned there's a, a quality control space and uh of course midutoyu was well represented there a brand we we both would highly recommend for their, their measuring tools there are a number of QC areas sprinkled throughout the building, and, and one of them had uh, what is absolutely one of the largest precision calipers I've ever seen from Minutoyo. And this thing could, I would think you could measure the axle on a train with it if you wanted to. Now, was this a, was this a vernier caliper or was this yes. a micrometer? Most of the, the Minutoyo ones I saw around were all the verniers. An interesting piece of equipment from Minutoyo I had never seen before was the surf test which does surface finish analysis it can measure 19 different surface roughness parameters so that was in that final qc stage and then they'll check the surface roughness on the various sharp edges that they are, are shipping up yeah that's uh that's a level of sort of qc work i've never bothered doing because for me i can i can look at a piece and i know whether you know whether it's polished or not right because i'm i tend to be going to a higher level of polish than than what they're looking for but i'm also doing those polishes by hand and when you're machining a surface finish and you're trying to to get to you know not only the the surface finish that you want but also the actual dimension that you want you're you're trying to to hit your tolerances then these surface finish testers are uh, are kind of important because uh, it it will tell you whether you've actually reached the the surface finish that you need and in the case of a woodworking tool, that's going to have a huge impact on how smooth it, it runs across the wood and and also what kind of marks it's going to leave on the wood as well because you don't want the the plane, the base of your plane to be rough and, and leaving a mark on, on wood when you're running it across there. There were, of course, uh, a number of surface plates littered throughout the, the building as well for various measurement checks. And an interesting tidbit that I was previously unaware of as i've never needed to work with anything heavy enough to warrant it is that beyond chipping a secondary function of the chamfered edge on a surface plate is to rest a particularly heavy object against that chamfer and then to tilt them gently onto the surface to avoid damaging the surface plate when setting something particularly heavy down onto it 
it's important when you're putting things on surface plates that you're careful about how they go on. First off, the cleaning them is extremely important because you, you have to keep everything everything super clean. So you'll often see people when they're using surface plates properly that they're they're always wiping the surface plate and, and wiping the bottom of whatever it is that they're putting on it. Uh, and then you'll also see that they're gently they're gently sort of rolling it on to the surface plate. They're not trying to put it down flat. And uh, that that's important when you're putting things onto a surface plate. Uh, you want to make sure that it's actually on there properly and that nothing's trapped under it. And especially when you're putting something particularly heavy on there, you have to be careful. And then, of course, they also had a, a number of CMMs, which are coordinate measuring machines that'll take a, a number of measurements on a finished product or uh, something that's in the process of, of being finished just to make sure that everything is falling within the parameters that they have, have set out. And that, that would be another reason, too, that they have a product like the the surf test is because uh, while you or I could you know visually inspect something for a, a one-off piece, when you're mass producing something, you want to ensure a certain level of consistency. And whereas the sort of check by eye we we may be doing is provides a, a very subjective measure. Things like the the surf test and the CMMs give a more objective measure of, of quality. Just like the Lord Chancellor that we talked about on the episode about the perfectionists they were looking for the same kind of thing where they wanted an objective measure of whether something was actually made properly or not. Now, these CMMs that you were looking at, are these manually controlled CMMs or are these automated CMMs? So they have a mix. So one of the rooms had ones that were manually controlled, and then another room had one that was much more automated. Now, these weren't up and running and in action at the time that I was there, so I didn't actually get to see them running. Uh, but I did get a, just a brief demonstration uh, of the sorts of, of measurements they would be taking with them. Now, did they talk a lot about the tolerances that they're working to? Uh, we didn't really dive into that because it, it varies so much from product to product. I mean, you've, you're talking about some of their, their chisels. They're going to be grinding to a, a mirror finish, and then you've got other things that would just be like a, a screw or a little adapter or a clip that just makes some task in the garden or around the house easier. They do make a number of different things. Their little machinist toys are kind of fun. They've got some little puzzles that uh, sort of bolt puzzles. Those those obviously don't have very high tolerances. But uh, I was thinking more along the lines of something like their planes. Because uh, their, their planes are certainly some of the more impressive items that they manufacture. Uh, the the quality on those is very high, and the the repeatability on them must be quite high. So, I'm I'm just curious as to what sort of uh, tolerances they work to for their for their plane manufacturing. Yeah, I don't don't have any hard numbers, but I, I do know that. Um, so they don't do any of the hardening or tempering on site. That's all shipped out and done in the U.S. and then comes back to them. And so when that process is done, you more often than not going to have a little bit of warpage that occurs in the the metal because it's a lot of of stress and change is happening very rapidly so very rarely it does the metal stay perfectly flat and true so then it'll go to the grinders and then they'll have a certain amount of tolerance that they have to play within to eliminate that arcing that that may have occurred or, or deformation in the metal and if they're not able to eliminate it, then then those pieces are are scrapped. Or scrapped is the wrong word because they tend to find a use for everything. Uh, every little offcut and thing that doesn't quite work out gets repurposed into a brand new tool. And then, I mean, they have little tiny tiny planes that are, that are about the size of your finger. So like nothing goes to waste. They they make use of of all the materials. I, I'm I'm actually a bit frustrated with how efficient they have become because. Uh, back in the day when I was living nearby, they used to sell their offcuts from their manufacturing. So they used to sell brass and steel offcuts, um, usually either round bar or hexagonal bar. And most of the pieces were sort of 12 to 16 inches long. And they were selling them for less than scrap price. Uh, you know, beautiful m material that they were using in their manufacturing some of it was stainless steel, some of it was 12L14, a lot of really nice brass. And I used to buy, you know, chunks of it when I went in there because they had them at all different sizes, all different diameters. And it was a great way of getting sort of inexpensive 
small pieces for being able to do things. So I was using them a lot for making fixtures and mandrels and things like that. And then I went in there one day and I was looking around for the uh, the pile of offcuts. And uh, I was told that now they had figured out how to actually use those short lengths, those sort of 12-inch lengths that they were they were selling off in the store. And uh, they'd figured out how to use even more of it. And uh, I guess they had upgraded to some newer machines that could actually grip smaller uh, smaller pieces of uh, material. So I was a little frustrated when they became that efficient because I was uh, I lost my source of uh, inexpensive offcuts when I uh, when that happened. Yeah, they had a, a number of Swiss style lathes, CNC lathes, just whirring away there, spitting out tiny little pieces from offcuts. So yeah, nothing goes to waste. There, there's a, a bygone era. It was really neat to see the some of the chisels and the process that goes through because I've never really thought of what goes into making a chisel, but they, they start from round bar. So it'll be turned on a lathe, then jump over to a mill or a five axis CNC to take more shape. Then it goes off for hardening and tempering, and then it comes back and it gets ground. And then they have a whole series of lapping machines, very similar to the sorts of machines that I've seen in Swiss factories for lapping of jewels and, and crystals and things like that. And uh, they're in the process of updating those or more or less hacking them to, to make them easier to use because they they have a series that are, are old school. They're, they'll actually put uh, weights down on top of the blades that are being lapped. And they have one other one that they've rigged up to function pneumatically. And to the best of my knowledge, the particular laps that they are using were being manufactured just one province over in Quebec, but the company that was making them is no longer in business. So they are now sort of taking where that company left things and then improving on it. Another thing I, I thought was clever about the way that they handle their, their stock metal is that it was all centralized within the workshop. So everything is built out around that. So it was never too far of a walk to go and get more material to be able to feed into the machines to, to keep them whirring away and producing parts. Yeah, that's something I've seen a few factory tours so far. If you if you follow John Saunders on YouTube, he runs a YouTube channel called uh, NYCCNC. Uh, he's someone I've followed for a number of years now. He, he actually started out running a little tag mill in his uh, in his apartment in his bedroom in uh, New York City, and he's now running a job shop in Ohio. And he's uh, he's actually got quite a quite an impressive little shop. And his YouTube channel is uh, is excellent as a destination if you're looking to learn how to machine, particularly CNC machining. And in his travels, he does a lot of tours of facilities and, um, you know, to sort of film them and, and see what other people are doing. And he's done a couple of uh, of great tours of factories, including a few uh, sort of local to him. There was one, I'll have to see if I can find exactly which one it was that I'm thinking of. can't remember the company name now. But they were, they had built a, a their custom building recently to move all their manufacturing into. And they were very intentional about how they laid out the factory. And one of the things that was important for them was the uh, the flow of material, where it got dropped off at the bay doors from, you know, from their suppliers, and then how it moved through machining into the, you know, into the sort of the final QC and, and packaging area. Uh, if I remember correctly, they were manufacturing vices for CNC machines. And, you know, you're starting from raw castings that are quite large, and might weigh 100 plus pounds. So you don't want to you don't want that material to need to travel very far uh, from where it gets delivered into the into the factory. You want the the first sort of area that it comes across to be sort of the first level of machining that it works on. So, and they had mentioned that the improvement of layout, the the way they had changed the layout and the flow of of manufacturing in their facility, had had a huge impact on on how quickly they could manufacture things. I think they were also coming from a couple of different buildings and consolidating into one. So they used to store material in one building and then bring it to another building for the initial machining and then go off to another building. And it was just, it was a nightmare. So that, that can have a huge impact on how you're, uh, how efficiently you're 
manufacturing goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ideally, you want to be able to move things through as, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And another thing that needs to be taken into consideration is being able to find things when you need them. So another aspect of their setup that I found interesting is that they have an automated storage and retrieval system for all of their CNC bits and, and other tools and things that they need to be able to, to locate quickly and that are also somewhat valuable. So you don't want someone walking out the door with one. So they have this system known as the AutoCrib from DGI Supply, which is a, a subsidiary of Dual. And it's basically a, an industrial vending machine. You, you go up to it and you, you scan your card or punch in an ID tell it what part you want, you pull it out, you weigh it to verify for the machine that you've, you've taken the correct thing and so that it knows how much it should weigh when you go to put it back. And that way someone always knows exactly where a particular bit that they may need is. So it'll be like, oh, uh, John Doe had this the last time. Uh, I'm just going to go see if he's done with it or get a different one from the machine otherwise. Or it'll, it'll tell you what's in stock. It reminded me of uh, a much larger system I saw, Rolex, that's made by Remstar, and it's used for parts storage and, and retrieval. But this was, the AutoCrib is definitely more vending machine size, whereas the, the one at Rolex is a multi-story unit, where the, you as the user are only exposed to a, a very small fraction of the parts at a time. So it's kind of like walking up to a counter and a drawer will light up for the particular part that you've keyed in. When you key in a part, you know, the, essentially this portion of the wall in front of you would, would move up and down a, a little bit like the uh, opening sequence in WALL-E, the movie from Pixar, where he, the little robot is off collecting trash and sorting and organizing things. And he's got that, that wall in his little hideout or house that, that will move and door and sort and organize various things. Uh, the very handy systems for keeping on top of a plethora of items and being able to to get back to things quickly and, and keep them properly organized because when you go to put something back it, it knows what it is you you pulled out and yeah it's got a scale right there so everything is is weighed and, and checked and uh, just helps to keep things running smoothly yeah a lot of people don't really consider or th- consider the the fact that tooling becomes a and when I say tooling, I mean things like end mills and whatnot becomes a, a significant challenge when you're inventory challenge, when you're working at the scale and making sure that you have enough of the item in stock. So you need to make sure that you, if you're using a, a half inch carbide end mill, that you have enough of them around to be able to actually do work on a regular basis. And when they get worn, because they do, they do wear uh, after, depending on the material that you're working in and and the tolerances that you're working to and the surface finish that you want, then, you know, they, they need to dispose of them, but you need to make sure that there's enough of them available on hand at any one time. So these, these kinds of systems are critical for keeping track of, uh, of how many tools you're going through, how quickly you're going through them, being able to order them automatically so that they can, they can make sure they've got enough stock of, uh, of a particular tool so they don't get shut down. Many years ago, I worked on an inventory control system for... Uh, that, that was used a lot by large electrical and plumbing suppliers. And one of our customers at the time was uh, um, a part supplier for General Motors. And in this case, they were actually supplying tools to the shop floor. And uh, that was that was crazy dealing with that system because, again, you're it's the same, same kind of idea. Now, in their, this case, the vending machine was a complete, you know, building complex a couple of miles down the road from the uh, the factory. And they had hundreds of thousands of of tools available that uh, they could supply at any time to uh, to the factory floor. But that uh, that flow of of uh, tooling from one place to another was was critical to keep the factory going. Mm-hmm. The the setup they have at Rolex is is absolutely incredible. It's uh, it reminds me a little bit of the um, sequence in the Matrix where uh, decides he needs some guns. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all, the, all these guns come come flying out of nowhere. Uh, that apparently, uh, at the actual main factory where they do the assembly work at Rolex, if a watchmaker happens to need a part, they can can key it in when they start running low, or if they 
need one in a jiffy. And the average turnaround time for a robot to deliver a part through the delivery system is, is under eight minutes. Under eight minutes? Mm-hmm. That's that's incredible. Yeah. Well, when you think about the, the sheer number of things they're they're organizing, uh, it's, it is absolutely incredible. They must have hundreds of thousands of items in their SKUs. Like that must be, uh, that, that would be unbelievable to try and maintain. And thousands of people working. Like it's, yeah, just unreal. The Santa Fe Symposium is held annually in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's the premier collaborative forum for jewelers and professionals in jewelry-related fields. Bench jewelers, manufacturers, lapidarists, metallurgists, casters, educators, and many more take part in this multifaceted event. The symposium was founded as a non-commercial, not-for-profit gathering for professionals willing to freely share their research, challenges, solutions, and innovations. By attending, you will come away with practical know-how you can put to use in your own work. Each year, 24 papers are presented across an exemplary range of jewelry-making endeavors. Attendees receive a copy of the Proceedings book, as well as a USB drive with the presentations. Attendees form new relationships, strengthen existing bonds, and build their professional networks with colleagues from around the world. The Santa Fe Symposium offers incredible benefits that last throughout the year and into the future, and the benefits grow stronger each year you attend. Longtime listeners of the show will be familiar with some of the fascinating places I've visited over the past year, including tours of the Goldsmiths Company, Cookson's Gold, and Birmingham City University. Those visits are all thanks to the relationships I've built from attending the Santa Fe Symposium. The Santa Fe Symposium is one of the few must-attend events of the year for me, and I hope you join me in Albuquerque next year. The 2019 Santa Fe Symposium will be held May 19th to the 22nd. Visit santafesymposium.org today for more information on the lineup of speakers and how to attend. Along with information on the upcoming symposium, you can also find papers from previous years. While visiting Dr. Frank Cooper at Birmingham City University back in September, I was introduced to Dr. Anne-Marie Carey. Dr. Carey presented a paper to the symposium in 2013 on rediscovering the Cheapside Hoard. The Cheapside Hoard is the greatest cache of Elizabethan and Jacobean jewelry in the world. It was discovered by workers in 1912 who were demolishing a 17th century tenement building. The paper discusses how Anne-Marie and her colleagues used the latest digital technology, as well as their experience as bench jewelers, to analyze some of the pieces found in the hoard. Four pieces are presented in detail in the paper, including an Elizabethan watch. You can find this paper and hundreds more at santafesymposium.org. Somewhat tangential to the, the jewelry trade was the tumbling machine that they had there for for tumbling some larger aluminum parts was absolutely the largest tumbler I have seen in my life and it wasn't running when I was there but I was told when it does run you you can feel it uh, all within a good radius around the the room where it operates and you can you can feel the sh- the floor rumbling uh, it's absolutely massive it's made by a company named Walter Troll and uh, yeah, just huge. I mean, uh, if you want to toss in a, a couple of parts from an airplane, you could probably have them come out nice and nice and shiny. When I was at uh, the Santa Fe Symposium two years ago, I went on a tour of the Rio Grande facility because they manufacture a lot of their own parts. And one of the places that I found impressive was their uh, their finishing area because they have a huge selection of vibrating tumblers. Now, they're not the size, they're not the, the scale that uh, that Lee Valley's using, obviously, because the scale of their parts is very different. But it was the same kind of thing there. They they were in production. They were actively manufacturing pieces. And uh, yeah, it was it was impressive, the uh, the vibration coming out of that, uh, that, that part of the, uh, the facility. Mm-hmm. This is the only tumbler I've ever seen that I could climb up into and go for a swim in. If I wanted to, not not that I'd want to. I can imagine at the scale that Lee Valley is producing pieces, hand finishing is just not an option. They need to have automated manufacturing like this or automated finishing like this to some degree. There's plenty of hand checking along the way. And actually, you know, hand finishing isn't completely out of the question. There was uh, a gentleman who was chamfering the holes out of every piece that he was pulling out of one of the automated lathes as we were walking by. Haas was was very well represented as as far as their multi-axis CNCs 
machines went. I would say that the, they were the dominant brand there in the, the back of the shop where they have most of their, their multi-axis systems running, and along with some old Finux and uh, a Matsura from Japan. Yeah, I'd, I've heard through through a few people that I know locally that uh, that they've been doubling down on the Haas equipment that they have, which I found interesting because a lot of the Haas equipment is it's sort of entry level manufacturing. Um, it's still it's still really good equipment, but from a manufacturing point of view, it's a little bit entry level. And when you start looking at some of the like Matsura equipment and things like that, where they're designed to be loaded with pallets and uh, left unattended for 72 hours, you know, that kind of thing. Um, those kinds of machines now are starting to become more and more common in these kinds of manufacturing facilities. So I, I was a little surprised because I, I don't think Haas has that kind of pallet system where you can, you know, you can uh, sort of load up 20 or 30 pallets or whatever and then let it uh, let it run for a couple of days at a time mm, yeah run a factory in the dark yeah yeah exactly because uh, that's that of course is one of the one of the key things you want your you want your spindle staying running as long as possible so if you can have the the change over time between pallets to be as short as possible because the machine is handling it um, and then the the operator can take that pallet off and take the parts off at you know sort of at their their leisure then um, your spindle can continue running as long as possible or as, as large a time as possible during the day. So yeah, it's a, it, it was interesting when I heard that they were they were buying more and more Haas equipment for their shop. I can understand why, given the scale that they are working at, because they're using a lot of the machines for multiple different purposes. So they don't have necessarily a dedicated purpose for... A given machine in terms of the particular tool that it'll be churning out. It'll be, you know, three weeks churning out this part, three weeks churning out that part, a week churning out this part, and so on. So they're not producing at uh, the sort of scale that you would, would see for tools and whatnot coming out of, say, China or Japan or you know, the Taiwanese market. And one of the advantages of these um unattended machines though is that the pallets don't need to be the same job so they'll often have a 500 tool changer on the back of it for tool you know so when a tool wears it can it, there are 10 copies of that tool in the in the tool library and then each pallet can actually be a completely different job they don't need to be the same thing so you could you know you could actually run three different planes and you know some gardening tool all on different pallets in the same batch, and uh, the system could handle that. So, now there are a lot of those manufacturing facilities or manufacturing centers now are designed to be able to handle that that change up of of tooling. So, mm, yeah, the change of tooling is not not as big of an issue. But I I, didn't, I never really thought about having it switch up programs partway through as well. But that's absolutely feasible. It's just uh, shuffling bits. Well, the, on, sort of the opposite end of, of the automated spectrum an interesting very small tool that i could have just walked right by something called a, a tapmatic yeah which mounts in a, a drill press i had never seen this before so this is something you're familiar with oh yeah the tapmatic is great I've, I've thought about getting one for my my shop and in fact they've got i think the modern tapmatic uh they also have uh tapping arms which are if you think about the the articulated arms that you would have a lamp on for instance how you can pull it and put it in you know different positions and they have uh, a product that has a, t a power tapping head that goes on onto an arm and so you can sit there and put your workpiece down on a table and you basically just use this this tapping machine to to go into each of the holes that you need to uh, but the the nice thing about these tapmatic units is that they've got a clutch system inside of them so that when the uh, the tap hits the bottom of the hole, uh, it automatically reverses the direction of rotation. So you're not going to snap your tap, and it will go in automatically, and then it'll come back up out automatically, which is great. Saves you a huge amount of time and saves you a lot of, of broken taps, mm -hmm. uh, particularly if you're if you're tapping a large number of holes and pieces. And I know some of their 
some of their fixtures and and whatnot that they sell have a huge number of holes in them. So if they they had to manually tap those, then uh, that, would, that would take forever. I mean, uh, tap medics certainly nowhere near as automated as a, a Matsuro or a, a Hass would be, but it's quite automated in that it it takes care of all the the headaches and, and issues that that could pop up. In, in tapping for you. I mean, not all of them. You still got to apply lubrication and whatnot. But yeah, you don't have to worry about breaking a tap off while you're, you're tapping a hole. And f- for the listener who might not be familiar with what we're, we're talking about or referring to here, this is basically just preparing holes for a screw to be screwed down into. So you take a round metal hole in a plate that you've drilled, and then this particular tapmatic was mounted in a drill press. And then you, using this drill press, you can just push the, the tapmatic down into that hole and it will automatically take care of making the threads to receive that screw absolutely perfectly for you. And uh, it's just a yeah. really ingenious piece of technology. And uh, I was dead set on getting one after just seeing it as well. And then I, I just quickly discovered how much they cost and <laughs> I, I can't quite justify it. Yeah. They're, they're not the, the cheapest thing on the planet. And, uh, $1,000 will get you a, a Tapmatic, and, and you can get them in different, for handling different size taps. Uh, I, I've considered getting one because, again, for sort of $1,000, you can turn an inexpensive drill press into a very fine tapping machine. You know, again, the, that ability to adjust the clutch so that it's not going to snap the tap as it's working is so critical. I've There's nothing worse than snapping a tap in the middle of a part that you've already spent dozens of hours working on because then you either have to scrap the part or you have to figure out how to dig that tap out of the uh, out of the part that you've just uh, you've just finished working on so anyways yeah it's uh, this tapmatics are beautiful uh, I've, I've thought about adding one to my shop but I, I just as just like you i haven't been able to justify buying a new one yet mm-hmm. now a, a very manual operation that they still do there which freaked me out a little bit looking at it is um I mentioned Duel earlier as the, the manufacturer of the auto crib for the vending of, of various parts. They this ancient bandsaw made by Duel for cutting through metal, and attached on the side of this bandsaw was uh, an equally ancient machine for welding the bandsaw blades together to be, to be put into the machine. Uh, because ch- chewing through metal, you're going to chew through blades far quicker than you're, you're going to going through wood and whatnot and um i would think it would be more economical just to have pre-made blades done up but uh, apparently not uh, so they they have this little welder on the, the side there and uh I'm not sure if it's an, an arc welder or what it is but i didn't see it in action they basically put the the two ends of the blade in pull a frankenstein lever and it it welds it together and uh I'm, yep that's exactly what it is. It's a little. It's just a little um, uh, induction welder, and it's uh, yeah. It, it welds the two parts of the blade together. I mean, this thing. This thing was a beast. I'm not sure I'd want to be around when it's in action. Just just knowing. I, I've seen a few bandsaw blades go in my day, just working with wood, and uh, I would not want to be around when one goes working on metal. That's actually a very common thing to have on bandsaws. And, you know, you can go into Busy Bee Tools or somewhere like that and, and actually or go to King Canada or, you know, whatever equivalent and you can find high-end bandsaws that have welders built into them uh, even today. So it's, it's actually quite common and it's, uh, they're used all the time. So, yeah, I wouldn't worry about the, the quality of those blades after they've been welded together because they're, they're actually quite, uh, quite strong. Perhaps it's just the ancient appearance of this particular one that was, was throwing me. Reminds me of an old demagnetizer that uh, I have that basically just takes electricity straight from the wall and, and runs it through two <laughs> me- metal strips with a, a button on top. And you can watch the electricity arc between the metal strips as you bring them closer <laughs> together. That Yeah, not a tool that I, I make use of anymore. It was inherited from an older watchmaker. So they have plenty of automated mills around the shop, too. Most Mostly uh, feelers and, and hercos, and of course the multi-axis CNC machines that we talked about. But uh, they did quite a number of, of older machines. And uh, while I, I didn't get to, to see it uh, at one point, uh, the gentleman touring me around gestured off to a, a far-flung corner 
of the the shop and mentioned that they have a particular lathe on hand here and their shop that was used to machine Terry Fox's prosthetic leg that he ran across the country on. Really, I didn't realize that they had uh, they were involved in that. I I never. I mean, I remember Terry Fox's run across Canada when I was a kid, um, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't even think about who had manufactured that prosthetic, because I imagine at the time there weren't a lot of companies doing custom prosthetics. Certainly not that could handle what what he was doing. Now, to the best of my knowledge, the leg that Terry Fox ran on wasn't actually manufactured by Veritas or Lee Valley. They came to acquire the lathe after the fact. So Lee Valley was ah, founded okay. in 1978, and that would have been their mail-order business that was running out of the, the basement of a strip mall. And I don't think they were into manufacturing at that point. And Terry Fox ran across the country just two years later. So I don't think those historical arcs quite meet, but not every tool tends to have its, its well, I shouldn't say every tool. There are tools out there that have their their stories and their lore that come along with them. And for this particular one, it, it happened to have been acquired from a machine shop that had created Terry Fox's leg. Yeah, that's that's kind of fun. I, I've known, I've been fortunate to know the backstory of a couple of my machines, and it's it's always nice knowing what uh, what previous life they had. Yeah, and for, for a little bit of context, Terry Fox was a Canadian who was a double amputee thanks to cancer that he had. And he decided to run across Canada in an effort to raise awareness and money for cancer research. And unfortunately, he didn't make it across the uh, the country, but it was uh, it, it certainly gripped the entire country when he was doing it. So it was quite a uh, quite a cultural event here in the country. I, I don't know how far outside of Canada that story reached, but inside of Canada, you certainly you couldn't escape it. It was it was quite a powerful sort of cultural event in inside of Canada. Mm-hmm. Now going back to the lathe setups that they have, uh, it's you said that they have a number of Swiss lathes for doing uh, small parts. Uh, I assume that they have uh, sort of more generic lathes, like larger ones doing, presumably Haas lathes doing um, sort of the larger parts that they have as well. I don't know that I saw any Haas lathes per se. I can't remember the make of, of the lathes that, that I, I came across. Although the, in mentioning uh, what you have, it brings up another neat thing that I, I saw there. They have a number of grinders made by a, a German firm named Gokel. And and the way that the parts are, are mounted in their fixtures on these grinders is that the, the bed is... Uh, basically a giant electromagnet and if you align the particular metal alloys on the the fixtures that the bottom of them are, are laced with line those up with the lines on the the bed and flip a switch all of a sudden the fixtures are all locked in place so it makes it very easy to quickly secure a, a large number of items in place to grinding pass and and work on the pieces in that way. I think they grind as many as a couple hundred chisels at a time on these machines. It's impressive. Yeah, using uh, magnetic checks like that is very common in grinding operations because the forces that are involved are significantly lower than in turning or in milling. Uh, Although occasionally you do see people using magnetic checks in milling. That always terrifies me when I see that. And I've seen people using magnetic chucks on lathes, which also terrifies me. Now, I, I'm not sure that I'd ever want to hold a workpiece on a magnetic chuck and a lathe, but there certainly are chucks out there designed for lathes that are magnetic chucks. But yeah, using using a magnetic chuck and grinding is a very common operation. You can easily put a large number of parts down on magnetic chucks. They'll, uh, they'll hold pieces in ways that uh, you can't easily hold otherwise. One of the arts of doing sort of surface grinding or any kind of grinding is uh, making sure that your pieces are blocked properly so they don't go flying when the uh, the grinding head comes uh, comes in contact with the piece. Yeah, not something I'd ever come across in the, the much smaller manufacturing processes I, I'm more accustomed to. Especially considering you want to avoid making your watch parts magnetic at all costs. So it, it wouldn't be the kind of thing you'd want in, a, in and around a, uh, a watch. 
Mm-hmm. So we've talked quite a bit about uh, industrial CNC machines this episode, and you recently gave a presentation with friend of the show, Rich Lowen, on making your own CNC machine. Do you care to share a little bit about how that went? It was a good talk that we had at Maker North a few weeks ago. Rich and I spent probably a bit too long talking. Uh, we were there for probably two and a half hours, and uh, we had maybe a dozen people show up to uh, to discuss the ins and outs of building your own custom CNC machines and uh, answer people's questions about how that uh, how you can build your own custom custom machines to do the the specific type of work that you're looking for. Well, it sounds like the talk was well received, so I'm sure it's something you guys will more than likely be doing again in the future. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, you recorded that as well. So be sure to link to it once it's it's released on the, on the YouTubes. We did record it. We filmed ourselves doing that. I don't know how the audio quality was. We were, uh, I think that may be a little suspect, but we did record the talk. And as I said, the talk was about two hours long. So hopefully we've, Rich can turn it into something that's a little bit more uh, compelling than the original. We've also been asked to come back in the new year to Maker North to give the talk again. So we'll make sure that everybody knows about that, both when the video becomes available, as well as uh, when we do that talk again. Our thanks to the Santa Fe Symposium for sponsoring this episode of Off Hours. Please visit santafesymposium.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.